Hello everyone, welcome to Blunderphonics, where we put music's most troubled productions to tape. I'm Jack Durback. What's up? It's Spencer Faust. Now, before we get into today's episode, Spencer, I wanted to ask you something very, very personal. I know you used to be in a band back in like middle school, high school. Yeah, I've been, I've been in a, I've been in at least one band for every every school since middle. We all know that when you're young and you're making music, you get all excited about it and you like to just record this really really shitty demo and like put it on a CD cuz it feels official and hand it out to people. Have you ever had an experience with that? Yeah, my middle school band wanted to record we were called In the Crawl Space. We did a demo which we didn't know how to just record audio cuz all we had was this shitty little digital camera, so we recorded a video, but Turns out take one of the demo was unusable because at one point during it, I just got right up in it and flipped it off. And um, and that apparently was not suitable for how we wanted to disperse the media for <laughs> reasons beyond my comprehension. Some teacher at our middle school knew we had a band and asked if she could just play that demo during passing period on her smart board and just leave her door open and let, ev- let everyone watch it. Well, turns out the guys were like, yeah, Spencer, you fucked up. We can't use that. So now we have to record our own demo, which is just like a white stripes, only two people were available to record it that day. It was, Jack, that's my experience with shitty, shitty demos. Oh my Also, gosh. my band Worth of Tomorrow has a six track EP, so. That's so punk of you. You're such a rebellious little teenager. I know. What can I say? <laughs> what can I say, Jack? I was a teenage heartthrob who just wanted to fight the system. The reason why I'm unearthing these pent up and somewhat bitter emotions is because that experience is something that most people at a certain point realize, oh, maybe that wasn't recorded the best or, oh, that song was really, really bad. I really wish I didn't just go hand that out to people. And people kind of progress from that. Right? Typically, you're like, oh, you know what? I want to record something better. You get yourself like an audio interface. You get yourself some better guitars. Eventually, your equipment gets built up. You hope your skills get built up. (laughs) Well, I'm here to say that's all horseshit. You don't need any of that kind of stuff because there is a specific scene. There's a specific genre where people embrace the shittier your sound is the more naive you appear to be in your recording. And Spencer, that is called lo-fi. And SoundCloud. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it's called lo-fi uh, emo rap on SoundCloud. <laughs> lo-fi and outsider music. Hmm. Outsider music is this strange phenomenon where people embrace musicians, for lack of a better term, making music when they very clearly don't have the skills or experience to even come close to making it sound good at all. Now, I, Jack, I thought that's what punk was. No exaggeration, I thought that's what punk was, was just, we know we're shitty, but we're doing it anyway. You're almost there, because punk is all about just stripping it down to the bare essentials, but outsider music is less than that. Like, you listen to the Ramones, and you're like, okay, you know what, they're just playing power chords, but you know, it still sounds like a a song. It sounds like music, at least. Mm -hmm. Punk is the bare essentials, and outsider and lo-fi music are even less than that, which is just kind of a crazy thing to think about, but there is an audience of people who just prefer that sound where it's like, oh, I recorded this with my boombox. Hipsters, got it. Oh, yes, definitely a hipster scene. And the hipsters are very much to blame for this particular artist's fame. We are talking about Daniel Johnson, who is known as the Brian Wilson of lo-fi. And I'm really getting sick of people saying somebody's the Brian Wilson of blank. I feel like everyone goes towards that. Like, oh, BP's the Brian Wilson of oil. (laughs) 
Oh yeah, pepper. It's the it's the Brian Wilson of seasoning. Of spices. Of spices. <laughs> the Spice Girls. The Brian Wilson of bands. When the music press gets excited about something, they think of the name Brian Wilson, and their nipples get erect. They're like, oh yes, this is great. <laughs> this is what we want. I've always said that the maracas are the Brian Wilson of percussion. <laughs> What does it take to be the Brian Wilson of anything? Just to, to be mentally unstable and respected in any capacity? Yes. And that's it for our episode today, Spencer. You hit the nail on the head. <laughs> I have nothing else to add to that. <laughs> Before we get into some of the more crazy details about Daniel Johnson and his rise to fame and popularity, I would like to say that a lot of this information we are kind of skimming over if you want to hear more information about Daniel Johnson, there's this wonderful documentary called The Devil and Daniel Johnson. I highly recommend it. It's a very, very fascinating documentary that kind of plays up the fact that he's mentally unstable. And you could argue that maybe they're exploiting it a bit. But nevertheless, there's a lot of really great information there. I got to tell you, this whole show is about these captivating stories around records that almost didn't get made. And when you tell me that most of the life story of the uh, artist, we're gonna skip over that, it makes me wonder just how bad <laughs> the actual meat of this episode's gonna get for me. <laughs> makes me wonder just how much you're gonna hurt me. Almost no one was hurt during the production of Daniel Johnson's albums. Almost. There, there are a few, except few exceptions. He just had a lot of history of going between being a music star and ending up in an asylum. Like, it's pretty much like you flip a quarter and you see if it's heads or tails. That's where Brian Johnson, or Daniel Johnson is. Well, he's the Brian Wilson of Daniel Johnson's, <laughs> I get it. He's either in an institution or he was recording music. So there is a lot of information to unpack, and we are by no means psychologists. I'm sure we cannot crack down every minutia of what is going through his head. Daniel Johnson is incredibly well known for having a discography made up of almost entirely cassettes he hand-recorded himself. Mm -hmm. He also is well-known for his pure and childlike music and lyricism. It sounds essentially like he just hit record and he said what he wanted, and it's very pure in a low-quality, brutally honest way. It does feel very kind of childlike, but on its surface, I would say, yeah, it, it is um, surreal in how simplistic it is. You can tell it's recorded himself onto a cassette, but I gotta say, the poetry in some of his lyrics kind of blindsides you sometimes. It sounds stream-of-conscious. Yeah, a lot of his lyrics are disturbingly bleak and open about his emotions. Mm -hmm. And that kind of brings us to the other side of Daniel Johnson. He is a bipolar schizophrenic, which if you combine that sort of tortured mental state with his lo-fi quality, you apparently have a recipe for success in the hipster scene. And when we say success, it just means a cult following, right? Somewhat. He's one of those figures where he's more influential on other very, very successful people he is notably one of the founders of alternative music in general. Really? He inspired alternative rock groups from the 80s on, and he is pretty much seen as the forefather to that sort of alternative side, that more open and emotionally honest side of rock music. Daniel Johnson grew up in West Virginia, and he was one of those people that liked to make stuff in his basement. He was a creative type. He went to Kent State, and he met with a bunch of art buddies, and they would go and they would make movies and record stuff. And Daniel Johnson specifically liked to be the director and the star of his movies, the center of attention. 
One of his favorite things to do was to take his very cheap boombox and record himself playing on a chord organ or a guitar or a piano. And he would just do this stream of conscious singing and he would make cassettes and he made a ton of them. Some of his more notable early cassettes are called Songs of Pain. And the best follow-up name of all time, More Songs of Pain. <laughs> and if you want to guess, yes, those songs are in fact about his pain and his emotional troubles. I'm waiting for even more Songs of Pain. I'm still waiting for that one. <laughs> 2019, let's make it happen. One of the more notable topics that his songs cover involves a woman named Lori Allen. Lori Allen is an actual person that Daniel Johnson knew. She's a librarian. But to the dismay of Daniel Johnson... Even though she captivated him and sent his heart soaring, she was already engaged to an undertaker. Uh, ooh. <laughs> I mean, I mean somebody, somebody's got to marry them. <laughs> he's great at parties. You, you can't judge. <laughs> he has this trick where he takes cadavers. and eh, never mind. <laughs> Unfortunately for Daniel Johnson, he was head over heels for her, and she was practically his muse. He loved hanging out with her. He loved everything about her, except for the fact that she was engaged to somebody. So his sad boy instincts were hyperactive around this time where he was in love with her, and she continued to sort of be his muse throughout his life. He literally wrote hundreds of songs just about her, which is bordering on, in fact, crossing that border of being very obsessive. Mm -hmm. But don't worry, she's not one of the people that ends up getting hurt. I promise. Yeah, I was going to ask. <laughs> as far as I'm aware, there was a certain point where she was just sort of out of his life, but he still wrote songs about her. And during the premiere of that documentary, The Devil and Daniel Johnson, the director actually brought her to the screening and had them meet after like 30 years, which is why I say that might be a little bit of, of an exploitive documentary. It's very awkward, yeah, very weird. That's not cool. I mean, d don't... Uh... Like, I'm, I'm just assuming they were like, oh, this is going to be a great bonus feature. And then they were like smoking like cigars <laughs> wrapped in money. As you, as you open <laughs> up the wounds of an unwell man. But he was definitely that sort of love-bitten sad boy. And he was just writing music about how he wishes he could be with her. And to just compound on the sadness of those albums, they also had skits on them. But these aren't like your hip-hop rap skits. Nothing funny. They're skits of his mom yelling at him, saying that he'll never amount to anything and he was a hack fraud. Where's the punchline? During interviews, he'd like to say that all of that was just an act, but it was an act that they were putting on for over 20 years. So, so I'm assuming that's either him trying to be clever or just very morose about the fact that his mom hates him, but he doesn't care. I can't put it together, but I don't like any of the outcomes, so we're good. <laughs> Anyways, after two and a half years of going to Kent State, he dropped out of college and moved to Houston, Texas with his brother. For some unknown reason, he ended up at a carnival, and he traveled with this carnival for five months before he ended up in Austin, Texas. I, okay. I, I don't know if he was performing or if he was just hanging out with the bearded ladies. I don't know. And Austin, Texas is where everything starts to take off for Daniel. That that almost makes it sound like he got to Houston and he was like, mm, he didn't even give it a moment to sink in. He was like, no, car carnival, carnival time. So he loops back <laughs> around and he forgot which Texas he was going to. So he just, went to, he just went to Austin and hoped for the best. That is not outside of the ballpark of Daniel Johnson of, wait, this isn't the right place. I'll just end up somewhere else. And then he just ended up in a different part of Texas. That happens. Traveling Carney is one of the dream jobs of any hipster, so. While he was in Austin, Texas, he would take these cassettes that he recorded over his years of music and songwriting, and he handed out copies to literally everyone he could. 
He would just go up to people on the street and hand off his cassettes. So that's what Wikipedia means by self-released. You just <laughs> spread it around like religious pamphlets. Got it. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever people come up to me on the street and try to give me shit, I avert my glance and just walk away as fast as possible. But <laughs> luckily for Daniel Johnson, apparently Texas is full of hipsters. Because nothing is a more pretentious conversation starter than you throw this this little cassette in your car as you're driving your honey around, your friends around. And when nobody asks what you're listening to and they look uncomfortable, you're like, oh yeah, you like this? <laughs> Got this from some dude on the street. Uh, it, might, it may be stereotypical, but I'm thinking of like cowboys Yeehaw. who are also wearing sweaters. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, he got very lucky with the people he was handing his cassettes to because instead of throwing them in the trash, they started to get passed around and his music started becoming very well-known locally. If this kind of music is going to take off with any crowd, it's people that hang out with Texas carnies. <laughs> Local bands started playing his stark and childish music, and it was resonating with audiences. He was becoming like a local legend of sorts. People were covering this? Oh, yeah. A lot of bands found a lot of great source material to work with. He was almost a Bob Dylan character of sorts. That's... Where people just got a lot of meaning out of the songs and wanted their own twist on it. That's... And not even in just, like, you know, that more vague concept that it's like Bob Dylan. I listened to his first album, Songs of Pain. It is very, very Bob Dylan to me. I don't know. It's in that... I'm sure a lot of people claim to like it, and then I listen to it, and I'm not quite sure why, but... <laughs> I could stop here and just be like, oh, he was a local legend that just passed his cassettes around. But we wouldn't really be talking about him if that was just the case. He would be well known in Texas. You know, maybe his influence would have expanded throughout that state. But he'd be like a local favorite. He wouldn't be this huge monument to alternative music. And what kind of set that off, not only was he at Austin, Texas at the right time, where all these hipsters started gathering around. But guess who decided to pay a visit? Jack, don't make me. The producers of MTV. Oh, okay. That's a lot better than Mr. Dylan himself. <laughs> oh my god, a collaboration between the two would be amazing. Now, it might be weird for people nowadays to hear, oh, MTV showed up, and that's Daniel Johnson's big break. But, you know, back in the day, they used to actually show music and music videos. I was gonna say, in my, in my head, I originally went, oh, weird, those sketch people came out. Oh. <laughs> The Jersey Shore visited Texas? That's what? crazy. <laughs> but in particular, he was featured in the 1985 show, The Cutting Edge. These are the people that the mainstream people don't want you hearing, even though MTV was the mainstream. They had this sort of concert show where they were sort of saying, hey, these are artists you should look at. These people got huge. They covered Madonna. They covered R.E.M., and for some fucking reason, these guys keep popping up on our podcast. The Red Hot Chili Peppers got their fame from this mm, show as well. Leave me alone, Danny. I swear to God, the Red Hot Chili Peppers are just around every single instance of a famous musician having trouble recording an album. Can I? Which makes me think they're cursed. They might be cursed. Something a fan of the show mentioned to me was the reason... Bedlam and Goliath, uh, Mars Volta, the reason they were touring with the Chili Peps is because the Chili Peps guitarist is in Mars Volta. So that was... <laughs> I apparently blew over that fact. <laughs> anyway, the Chili Peps are a very prevalent figure on this podcast, and I just can't wait till we book them for an interview. The, their funk, I guess, is just so captivating that it just warps music around them. They're like a ball of funk gravity, and they're bending the <laughs> fabric of the funk scene around them. So Daniel Johnson was featured on this show, The Cutting Edge along the likes of Madonna and R.E.M., and his fame exploded. 
people from across the world, excuse me, hipsters from across the world (laughs) were finally tuning in and hearing his music and his reach and his influence was going across the United States across the world. Now, this was 1985, right? 1985, that's right. We're already past a lot of his more famous works, we're such as Hi, How Are You? We're past the album we're talking about today. <laughs> right. Hi, How Are You? is one of the many cassettes that he was handing out at the time. Okay. And it's sort of seen as his magnum opus during the time where he was recording on his own. Because he's starting to get incredibly popular, he's going to start meeting people who try to help him out with production, but his essence is pretty much within that cassette. Mm-hmm. And it sort of covers everything about him as a person. While we are going past when that album was released, because of his popularity and fame and people sort of paying attention to him as the music press, you start to see where all of these tortured songs come from. There's a lot of stories with him that because people are now paying attention, these cassettes retrospectively make a lot more sense. The reason why... Daniel Johnson was getting popular was because of these hipsters and because of MTV. A lot of this is thanks to a particular movement in the hipster scene called the New Sincerity Movement. I wish I could make this up, but the movement is described as post-postmodernism. Oh, scenes were a mistake. I don't know what asshole decided to add a prefix to another prefix, (sighs) but it basically just means modernism. It means that, oh, you know what? People like to be ironic and cynical about art. Let's just go back to innocence. They have to be all scholarly and like, oh, high art. Oh, post-postmodernism. Yeah, this cassette we're listening to that nobody really understands? Guy gave it to me out of his pocket. It's pre-postmodernism. Post-postmodernism. Post-postmodernism at its finest. It has a weird-ass frog. There's a a cow goes moo skit. Oh, it's magnificent. Wait, why are you guys unlocking the doors? What are you doing? We're we're on the highway. (laughs) Basically, it was hipster bullshit. That got him popular. But you know what? I have to thank that hipster bullshit for giving Daniel Johnson the opportunity to influence alternative music as a whole. He literally was somebody who worked at McDonald's by day, and at night he was a music star. He was like a Batman of music. Can you imagine just trying to order your six-piece McNuggets? Just trying to get your your grimace purple slurshy, and this guy's just kind of like mumble singing through the drive-through intercom. The cow goes moo. Here's your order. <laughs> He's just playing these fucking these little wind-up toys and just letting them ring. <laughs> you hear a toy piano back in the kitchen. Normally, this is where I would say Daniel Johnson never expected this fame, and he was very humble about it. Said that he would never in a million years dream of this happening to him. But that's not the case. Daniel Johnson was not unaware of the fact that people were enjoying his pain and enjoying the fact that his music was out there. He was very calculated, and he knew that people were liking his music because he was great at music. There was nothing humble about Daniel Johnson. One of my favorite quotes of his was that one of his all-time wishes was that the Beatles would get back together so that they would be his backing band. He literally saw himself as the replacement of John Lennon. There's no fucking way he was actually that narcissistic. That has to be that weird, like, ironic, nihilistic humor. Well, when you watch the documentary, The Devil and Daniel Johnson, it really doesn't seem that way. It seems like he really is just, he believes in himself and that this MTV thing wasn't just a fluke. It was just a matter of time before people discovered him. Earlier, I was of the opinion that if you're the guy that hands out his work on cassette tapes from his pocket, you're doing it for the weirdness. You're doing it to be the novelty. Now that you frame it with delusions of narcissism, 
Now it makes sense in a different light. But what I find kind of amazing about that is that Daniel Johnson absolutely knew that these hipsters were listening to his music and because they didn't want to be ironic and cynical anymore, and they were saying, oh, he's just really innocent. And in reality, he was like, no, I'm a fucking god. You bow down to me, you hipster bitches. <laughs> like, he was profiting off of this new sincerity movement when he himself was suffering delusions of grandeur and believing he was, like, this ultimate musician. Man, let me tell you, Hi, How Are You was written by an ultimate musician. <laughs> that's that's when I listen. I listened to that and I'm like, we peaked. Speaking of delusions and Daniel Johnson sort of being in the limelight, he would end up being institutionalized and a lot of people were like, oh, I guess all this fame is getting to his head. And when he was interviewed about it in the asylum, when he was interviewed about it in the institution, he was like, oh no, it's not the fame. I really love Mountain Dew. In fact, I love it too much that they put me in here. I really wish I could just be the spokesman for Mountain Dew. And during this interview, he sings his Mountain Dew song. Nobody loves Mountain Dew as much. He's the ultimate spokesman, Spencer. That might be true. I don't I don't care to argue with him on it. And this is pre-gamer fuel. Like he didn't have that sort of culture behind him. He just really genuinely loved the Dew. <laughs> there was a point in time when saying I love Mountain Dew more than anybody else in the world wasn't an ironic bit I say at the start of Overwatch matches. <laughs> and that I long for those days when it was really that shocking of a statement. After his institutionalization for apparently loving Mountain Dew too I'm much- I'm sure that's what he, it fucking said on the intake sheet, Daniel. <laughs> I'm sure that's what it said. He decided to visit back home and meet up with his family after living in Texas for a couple of years. But then he was sent back to Texas from his family because he was scaring his nephews too much. Well, he loved Mountain Dew too much. On his bus trip back to Texas, though, he started noticing a lot of cow skulls just littered across Texas. When I think Texas, sometimes cow skull enters my mind. Yeah. That seems to be sort of like a main feature of Texas. Well, it's right up there with tumbleweeds or like a like a crow. Texan hipsters. Like a, yeah, like a, like a guy in, a, in both a, a sweater and a cowboy hat. He was convinced that all these cow skulls were here because Texas was the state of Satan. He thought that Satan was placing these cow skulls here to let people know that this was his home state and he's repping it. This is my little Satan town token. Um, <laughs> you are welcome, cows are not. Never knew Satan hated beef so much. Apparently this really took a toll on his mental health. One of these early adopters of Daniel Johnson as a genius was Lewis Black who is one of the co-founders of the Austin Chronicle. He is somebody who has also shared a lot of information about Daniel Johnson are we in his early career. Are we talking about the Lewis Black comedian or? No, okay. it, it is. Right. It, it was a reporter. I, for a second, thought this was going to be a wild ride into Hollywood, too. <laughs> really? But like no. Lewis Black, the co-founder of Austin Chronicle, wrote this article called Genius and Jive, where he was sort of the one to blow the whistle on Daniel Johnson being a bit of a narcissist and being full of himself. That's where I'm getting a lot of this information. He was somebody who was with Daniel Johnson a lot of the time early on. Did he blow the whistle on how he was sick and needed help and not to be put under a spotlight? He dabbled in that. He kind <laughs> of saw Daniel Johnson as somebody who was kind of victimized in a way from hipster culture. Yeah. Or at least he says like hipsters are sort of exploiting his mental illness. It's a good thing that he's full of himself and he loves that. Is it exploiting mental illness to buy someone's music? Like, I think there's a certain point where he becomes famous due to people taking a lot of stock in this lo-fi outsider music. And I think it's debatable. I personally don't think it's 
exploitation until you start bringing up Lori Allen the librarian 40 years later for your uh, behind the scenes bonus feature. That's when it crosses the line for me personally. He got picked up by labels eventually, right? That would be exploitation. That Then when labels are making a profit off of him, that's exploitation, right? That is where we're going to have the line drawn and where people debate it. And okay. there's a particularly famous person who is responsible for his huge success and also for his huge infamy. Mm. But we'll get to that. Okay. The reason why I bring up Lewis Black, though, is the last big memory he has of Daniel Johnson. Hanging out with him and sort of getting to know this very egotistical but still very talented person. He was at home and he was sick. And he gets this call from the University of Texas saying, you know Daniel Johnson, right? And he's like, yeah, I don't want to deal with his crazy shit right now. I'm sick. And they're like, well, he's standing in a creek and he's freaking out. Lewis Black is like, I, I really don't want to deal with this. And they're like, no, seriously, like the police are here. If you don't come and try to get your friend out of here, the police are going to have to do something about it. We know that they are very sensitive to this kind of thing. So Lewis stayed home and everything worked out. That's right. Lewis went to the creek and saw Daniel Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> and Daniel Johnson must have taken some sort of drug. Like I said, he was very famous in the hipster music scene of Texas. He was most likely surrounded by a lot of people under the influence, and he himself is known for taking drugs. And his eyes were glazed over. They were white. Like an Egyptian prophet, they were completely white? Like a prophet of sorts. Lewis Black got into the creek and telling Daniel Johnson to get out. But he is loudly testifying. He is shouting these somewhat susical limerick. Running water, running water, what are you running from? You always seem to be on the run. You always seem to be on the run. And he's just saying this over and over and over. I'm, I'm speechless. I have nothing. It's almost, it's almost like he's singing a song to God or to the water or to the fish. Louis Black certainly didn't know and was just trying to get him out of that fucking river before he got shot by somebody. He eventually was hauled out of that river after his huge holy episode, and the cops went up to his manager, who was also there, and they're like, listen, this guy, he needs to be institutionalized. He is off his rocker. He's saying that the military is going to take over the country and that he's going to be on MTV next week. <laughs> to which the manager said, well, I don't know about the first one, but that second one is true. <laughs> It's almost as if the real world is half the delusion. <laughs> like he's living in a delusional world, but it's actually happening. Oh man, that's funny. I love that. People say he's delusional, but can you blame the guy? I mean, really, because yeah, there's a lot of shit happening to him in his right mind shouldn't be. <laughs> he would be in and out of institutions, but his fame was starting to reach a peak. He started working with a producer by the name of Kramer, not the guy from Seinfeld, but the founder and producer of one of the most popular slowcore slash sadcore bands ever, Low. He had also produced White Zombie, John Zorn, and in my opinion, the most notable, he produced Urge Overkill's cover of Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon, which was featured in Pulp Fiction. I am choosing to believe they're both the same guy. <laughs> Daniel Johnson's inside of a university freaking out throwing desks. All of a sudden, Kramer just slides in from oh, yeah. the entrance. Yeah, Michael Richards, the music producer. Yeah. Jerry, I'd like you to meet Daniel. He's like the Brian Wilson. This is where I would do my Jerry impression, but I still have dignity. I'm, wa I'm waiting till we're up in the, you know, like high hundreds of episodes, and I'm really just trying to keep you guys here. Why is everyone listening to lo-fi music? Ah, fine, I'll do it. Ba -ba 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 Kramer! <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, this work with Kramer would end up being one of the only albums in which Daniel Johnson had a professionally produced album in the works. Oh man, okay. 
He was working on an album named 1989, due for release in 1989. Can you believe it? Why do I feel like even if it is professionally produced, it's still going to be like a Tom Waits situation where he's like, I, I'm going to make it sound as weird as possible. Here's my boombox. <laughs> Speaking of Tom Waits, Tom Waits was hugely influenced by Daniel Johnson. Yeah, so. I can I can guess. <laughs> There's another big name that loves him. I can't wait till we talk about Tom on this podcast. I really can't wait. <laughs> oh man, I can't wait either. Daniel Johnson during the production of 1989 would hang out with bands such as the Butthole Surfers and Sonic Youth. Butthole Surfers, the band that got uh, Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love to fall in love. Yes, that's right. And they were featured in one of the first Nintendo commercials with Who Was In My Room Last Night. That's how I know them. Very strange song to use in a commercial about a video game is asking who the hell is in my bed. <laughs> Well, Jake, these are problems we have as gamers. <laughs> you drink that gamer fuel, you drink that Mountain Dew, and you just wake up and you're a huge alternative icon. I party hard, but I game harder. Nobody loves Mountain Dew more than me. During the production of his album, he would get into a lot of trouble. And this is mostly due to the fact that he was homeless at the time. Uh, whenever he was not recording, he would just wander the streets and get into trouble. One of his most infamous examples was he was caught drawing hundreds of ichthys on the Statue of Liberty. For those who don't know, the ichthys is the Christian fish. Mm -hmm. Drawing hundreds and hundreds of this Christian fish all over the Statue of Liberty. I'm assuming that's to wash Satan out of the Statue of Liberty, I'm not sure. Well, I mean, she was holding a giant cow skull, it made sense. He was was doing a collaboration album at the same time with the singer of half Japanese, Jad Fair. During the production of this collaboration, he went on a bus and got off on the wrong stop, much like you joked about with Houston and Austin. Because he didn't realize where he was at, he just he started having a delusional episode. He wandered into the apartment of a 68-year-old woman and started to antagonize her to get out of the apartment. Get out, get out! He just waltzed into her home at like midnight and started freaking out to the point where she jumped out of her two-story window and broke her ankles. It beats when he was gonna whip out the boombox and try and persuade her away with his bardic powers. Because of him forcing an old woman to jump out of her window, he was institutionalized again, which meant that the rest of 1989 that wasn't well produced had to be filled in with home recordings he made and live performances. So it wasn't 100% produced. Mm -hmm. Once 1990 rolled around, they decided to change the name to 1990 because, you know, you gotta, you gotta match. Of course, yeah, can't be a liar. With the release of this 1990 well-produced album came even more fame, more recognition, especially because he was hanging out with these bands like Sonic Youth and Butthole Surfers who were becoming huge underground influences. The same year of 1990, something very, very concerning happens. His dad decided to fly Daniel Johnson to a Austin, Texas show, sort of celebrating the local scene. And of course, Daniel Johnson has to go do that. And his dad used to be a part of the Air Force. He was an Air Force veteran. So he had his own personal plane and flew Daniel Johnson himself. And he decided Daniel Johnson to come back home and visit for a while. On the flight back, he had another manic episode where he thought he was Casper the Friendly Ghost. Now, I don't know what version of Casper he's aware of, but he was not very friendly. In fact, he took the ignition key out of the plane and threw it out the window. I'm assuming to become an actual ghost. Oh, God. His father, being an Air Force vet, did his best to try to crash land the plane. They crashed into a whole bunch of trees. And unfortunately... I'm just fucking with you. They were all fine. They had minor injuries. Oh, I honestly Jack. don't know how they didn't fucking die in flames. God, Jack, don't do that to me. 
This is a funny show. We would not show. be talking about this if they just fucking crashed. Oh my god. Fuck. Say, this is a funny show. I can't riff on this. Daniel Johnson was sent back to the ward for that, but this is one of the most notable times where he would end up in a mental hospital. While he was there, a particular musician by the name of Kurt Cobain started wearing a shirt of the album Hi, How Are You? Mm-hmm. Of the frog character on the cover. Yeah. And he was listing Daniel Johnson's Yip Jump music, which is one of his cassettes, as one of his top 50 all-time favorites. Just in case you were wondering, that frog mascot is known as Jeremiah the Innocent. <laughs> like he's a saint? Jeremiah the Innocent Frog who speaks of pain and suffering. I don't know if that's like his persona of sorts. I don't know if that's his avatar, but Daniel Johnson loves that frog. And that's one of his most iconic drawings. And Kurt Cobain loved that shirt. Oh, yeah, he did. He wore it everywhere. And this is the 1990s. Nirvana was kind of a big deal. Yeah, kind of a big deal. Grunge was the reason why my bloody Valentine stopped making music. I mean, it was huge. While he was in the psychiatric hospital, the major labels caught wind of Kurt Cobain, who was selling like hotcakes, and they swarmed the mental hospital, begging for Daniel Johnson to sign to their label. He was getting bids left and right. All of these label executives were showing up saying, you can be the next huge Nirvana. One of the most notable record labels was Electra Records, who was willing to give him shit tons of money. And his manager was like, Daniel, you have to take this deal. But Daniel said no to Electra Records. Oh, for one very particular reason. They were the label of Metallica, who he believed was Satan, and that if he signed to their label, they would come to his house and hurt him. Well... Like a bunch of high school bullies. Well, that... Yeah, makes sense. Because once you sign to a label, everybody shares keys. There's a bit of a hazing that happens whenever you sign to a record label. Exactly. Like, oh, I'm gonna sign to Atlantic Records. Oh, all of a sudden... <laughs> Michael Jackson shows up and he's gonna give me a purple nurple. Or Led Zeppelin's gonna hit me over the head with a guitar, give me a wedgie. God, I remember when I when I was offered to sign for Warner Brothers, and I could see Prince looking through my living room window. Like, he, he was trying to hide, <laughs> but it wasn't. He was wearing, like, a bush, kind of, but I saw him and I saw the aerosol can and the lighter, and I knew I was in for it. Was he also speaking in a low voice saying he was spooky electric? Oh, yeah. I could, I could hear, bitch. <laughs> Put on, your wig, put on your wig, bitch. Daniel Johnson was so offended by his manager even suggesting he signed Electra Records that he ended up firing the manager for working for Metallica, a.k.a. Satan's band. He eventually would sign on to Atlantic Records, huge record label, the home of classic rock giants Led Zeppelin, one of the most notable, and he started working with Paul Leary from the Butthole Surfers. Daniel Johnson's major label debut, unfortunately, was a huge flop, mostly due to the fact that he was in the institution when it came out and he couldn't tour for it or do any live shows. It was completely recorded in the mental asylum. It was released. Nobody bought it because the mainstream audience didn't know who the fuck this guy was. The only people who cared were the smaller fan base that knew him due to him handing out cassettes. The Kurt Cobain shirt-wearing incident was more or less a way for label executives to think, oh, how do we get another Nirvana? And it kind of blew up in their face miserably. But hey, Daniel Johnson made a shit ton of money from it. And he pretty much coasted off of that major label money for the rest of his life. Money makes the world go round and enables all sorts of shitty things. For most of his life, he would end up just staying with his parents so he didn't have a place of his own, but he had money to sort of fund his life. And eventually his parents would build him his very own home next door. So he would always be kind of close by for them to sort of take care of him and make sure he's doing okay. He would go out on tour 
tours, and these tours were highly regarded among music fans. He would have huge bands tour with him. Whenever he was at a particular place where there was a huge band nearby, they would be his backing band. I've seen a lot of clips of him playing live. Every single one of them is him singing, and then another far more important looking person playing next to him and just relegating themselves to that backing band role. And first of all, I wonder, can the man still play instruments? Because when I see him, like, in modern clips, he appears to have uh, heart dyskinesia, I think is what it's called. It's what Brian Wilson has, where he just, he shakes constantly. Yes, he still could play instruments. He did officially last year stop touring. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. I just thought he made enough money where he's like, fuck it, I'm done. <laughs> His influence even went on to such modern artists such as Mac Miller and Lana Del Rey, who actually produced a 2015 short documentary, Hi, How Are You, Daniel Johnston? And she covered a song specifically for that documentary. All of these artists would either be his backing band or cover his songs in some capacity. Daniel Johnston was just somebody who was cherished. And I find it kind of poetic how all of these bands were desperately wanting to be his backing band much like how he always wanted the Beatles to be his backing band. Bands that you think have no right to be a backing band were tripping at the chance to support him. I find it so fascinating how this huge, egotistical, uh, mentally tortured guy absolutely got everything he ever wanted. It's just a one in a million thing to me. It's so surreal because I listen to this music and that's already weird enough. But then I hear that he goes on MTV, that he gets labels begging him to sign on, and he's afraid that Metallica's gonna come kick his ass. None of this feels real. I sympathize with that cop who was like, this man is deranged. He thinks he's gonna be on MTV. <laughs> is he really deranged though, or are we all deranged? Because yeah, he- we're all the weirdos in his world. <laughs> he would go on to do things such as make his own comic books, called Space Ducks, which is something I mentioned in the last episode when we were talking about Black Parade and how uh, My Chemical Romance used to dabble in, you know, making cartoons and comics. Space Ducks, an infinite comic book of musical greatness is what it's called. Once again, sort of harping on how musically great he is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Some of my favorite lines from the comic book include, all of mankind is in danger. Only the ducks can save us now. <laughs> And during a huge laser fight, fight like apes, we are the ducks. <laughs> Neither do I. Neither I've do got I. got nothing. <laughs> that is the life and times of Daniel Johnson. Now let's talk about one of his most iconic Kurt Cobain approved albums, Hi, How Are You? I feel like with all of these stories of his explosion into popularity, it gives a lot of perspective to the album. So Spencer, how did you like your foray into lo-fi outsider music? If I was just trying to enjoy a juggling act and some guy came up to me and out of his pocket gave me this cassette, I would report it as a crime. <laughs> this this is harassment. What? And I'm also reporting you. This is harassment. Oh my God, you didn't like it? N you know what? I don't want to harp on Daniel Johnston's mental state and the creative expression that he was using to try and vent the problems he was living with. Of course. I do, however, want to just get a nice line of everyone that hails this as a w masterpiece and do one big slap. Holy fuck, this is just a surreal trip, despite what the stupid post-postmodernism wants to call itself. Um, I think this is pretentious. I find it quite pretentious. You could say it. It's hipster nonsense. Yeah, it's incredibly pretentious. It's got some very good biting poetry, but the, oh God, the chord organ where you, I can't tell if it's percussion or it's him just 
punching the keys so hard that it's making kind of a beat. Uh, let me clear that up for you. It is him just slapping the keys very hard. Yep. Okay. Yeah. That is just kind of the appeal of lo-fi and outsider music. There are people out there who love hearing people who don't know better try their best and failing. People have considered this the musical equivalent of The Room, which I find to be a very accurate... Yes. Yes, I love that because I tried calling this scene earlier cult fanaticism. The Brian, the, the Daniel Johnston following mostly cult fanaticism, which seems very fitting. It, it includes somebody who is probably not 100% mentally there, creating something that is wholly theirs and theirs alone. And for some reason, people lobbed onto it and loved just how incompetent and sounded, which in turn made him hugely successful. I think he's very much a Tommy Wiseau type character who also very much believes in him as being a huge artist, as a musician, just like Tommy Wiseau thinking he's a movie director, a movie maker, a star. <laughs> the comparison is so apt. I would need to look at more clips of uh, Daniel Johnston actually speaking to see if he grasps the English language. He, he's somebody who is, and that's actually a myth that was commonly perpetuated throughout the early phase of Daniel Johnston's career. People thought he didn't know anything. They thought he was 100% musically inept. And that's not really the case. He is, by all means, actually not that bad of a guitar and piano player. If you watch him doing live performances, yeah. he knew how to play. He knew music theory to an extent. It was the lo-fi, you can tell this is just one guy making this aesthetic that people liked. And it sounds so low quality, people just assumed he was playing shitty underneath all the noise. Are you saying that the, the aura of ineptitude is manufactured? I would say so for Daniel Johnson. There are a lot of other outsider musicians that I haven't listened to that I am absolutely sure are way worse than him. <laughs> I, I personally am within the realm of this is a very enjoyable record if you view it as The Room. There are a lot of albums where they're famous because they're supposed to sound like shit. And I feel like out of those particular albums, this one is actually not that bad in comparison. And maybe one day we'll talk about those other albums so I can torture you some more. I gave you some cookie cutter emo pop punk and this is how you repay me i gave you easy listening and this is how you repay me i'll be honest i find more emotion in these lyrics than my chemical romance maybe i'm just a sick fuck no jack i don't disagree with you there's more manufactured sentiment in those albums than there are in these oh man it just shows you that there are that when you listen to the black parade those are not truly songs of pain. The Yeah, let me tell you, I know some songs of pain and some more songs of pain. Why did you do this to me? <laughs> because it's a fascinating story and you can't tell me it wasn't. It really is. I can't <laughs> I can't tell you it wasn't, and Jack, that is why you are the host of Blunderphonics. You can weave a tale like no other. I have to give all thanks to Daniel Johnson, who had lived an amazingly interesting life, and thank God he didn't end up Casper the Friendly Ghost for real. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to talk about it. Yep. Because that plane crash is very scary to just hear about. That plane crash teeters on whether or not we can do this episode. So, Jack, do you have anything to plug? I actually would like to plug in my Rate Your Music page. It's called The Dissonant Opinion. A lot of my ratings kind of skew towards positive. I'm actually thinking about changing a lot of that. But if you want to go there and recommend me some music or recommend some albums, I have a list on there where you can physically put the album in whether I like it or not. And I I could take a look at it and see if we can cover it. I've gotten a lot of recommendations, including the Beatles' White Album, Death Consciousness by Have a Nice Life, Steely Dan's Gaucho. There are a ton of albums that I've been recommended and they just keep coming. And I highly suggest you guys send me any albums you think of 
with some sort of troubled production. And on top of that, I don't really have anything else to plug just yet, but I am actually working on releasing a single. Uh, it should be out near the latter half of September. Uh, I've listened to a lot of shoegaze and dream pop, and in terms of more modern musical trends, a lot of vaporwave and future funk, where people are taking 80s Japanese music and speeding it up, I can't get enough of that for some reason. And it's really inspired me, and I should have a song out, but more details will probably come with the next episode. Well, Jack, let me introduce you to Nightcore. I think you'll really enjoy it. <laughs> I have to admit, Nightcore is one of the many internet music trends that are fascinating me right now. I can't help it. I am loving lo-fi hip-hop beats, I'm loving the aesthetic, and I know it's kind of a meme, but I genuinely get a lot of fascination out of that atmospheric sound, so look forward to a very weird, dreamy, vaporish song coming from yours truly. Spencer, do you have anything you'd like to plug in? I have a podcast called The Cock and Bull, where my brother Nathan and I go over true stories with unbelievable characters, and while uh, while we've got everybody still here, tune in uh, for next episode when Jack and I cover The White Album. Ooh. I'm, put I'm throwing it out now, Jack. Get your homework ready. Oh my ready. god. Get your homework ready. You just ready. got me really excited because that's one of my favorite bands and that's one of my favorite albums of theirs because holy shit. Actually, I'll just have to save it. I'll have to save it. Oh my god, that's going to be a trek. That's going to be fun. Yeah, tune in next time for the White Album and thank you guys for listening. Check out our other shows uh, and please rate and review us. It helps us out. Feel free to uh, to throw out that, that genuine one-star review if you despise everything I say on this show. Although, if you really hate the show, maybe this is a post-postmodernist podcast, and maybe it's actually secretly genius. So give us five stars anyway. Hell yeah, Jack. You know how to spin it. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening in. We can't wait to have you guys tune in next time. I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your day. Peace. Go walk that cow. <laughs>